and welcome to Tax Yak, a tax banter podcast. We love yakking about tax, so we've invited a range of tax experts and practitioners to have a chat with us. We hope you enjoy this episode of Tax Yak. I'm Robin Jacobson, a senior tax trainer with Tax Banter, and your host of today's podcast. In this, our first episode for 2020, I'm very excited to be joined by some international guests. I'm joined by Marsha Lane Dungog. Director of Private Client Services International at Anderson, and her colleague Al Nunez, who is Managing Director at Anderson's, both from San Francisco in the United States. Marsha is an international tax lawyer, providing cross-border tax advisory, tax compliance, and controversy services for high net worth individuals, businesses, and US citizens living abroad. She has extensive experience in US international, federal, state, and local tax matters, with over 20 years of private practice in the US and Canada. She's a member of the California and Michigan bars, the US Tax Court, and US Supreme Court. She's also a barrister and solicitor in Canada, a public arbitrator for the United States Financial Industry Regulatory Authority, and an instructor for the American Institute of Certified Public Accountants. Marsha is a prolific author and frequent speaker on international tax issues. She has published tax technical papers which have been presented to the Tax Writing Committees of the US Congress, the US Treasury Department, and international conferences in the US, Canada, and Australia on the US taxation of foreign pensions and retirement, cross-border estates and trusts, US international withholding and compliance enforcement initiatives, and US state and local taxes for foreign businesses. My goodness, I'll come back to you in a sec, Marsha. And Al, uh, your background. Managing Director, as I said, at Anderson's in San Francisco. Al specialises in tax reporting for multinational, public and private corporations, tax accounting, uncertain tax positions, transfer pricing, compliance and planning. And just before I uh, formally welcome you, I also want to uh, invite Simon Calabria to the microphone. And Simon is a Director of Webmartin Consulting who will be joining us for this discussion on US taxes. And uh, a lot of experience, um, not just in indirect taxes and GST, but you're in the international space as well. So firstly, welcome Marsha, welcome Al. Great to have you in the country. Well, thank you, Robin. We're very happy to be here. And welcome, Simon. Thank you, welcome. Terrific. So, look, this is going to be a bit of a frolicking ride, I suspect, um, navigating our way through the US tax system and, and issues. So the way we're going to structure this, we're actually going to be doing two podcasts. And for our listeners, uh, the first episode is going to cover individual tax issues and superannuation and how this relates with the US tax system. And then in our second and following episode, uh, Al's particularly going to be chiming in and we're going to have a chat about business tax issues and entity issues and transfer pricing and, and those sorts of discussions. All that fun stuff. All that fun stuff. All right, just to set the scene, I think it's important to observe that, that the world has moved on. <laughs> and if we go back particularly to the status of residents in Australia and the definition of resident in our tax law, which was put there back in the 1930s, we've got concepts like domicile and place of abode and reside. And this was back in the days where it was very clear where you lived, where you worked. Mm -hmm. And we certainly didn't have this contemporary mobility that is now happening around the world. We've got families that live in one country. We've got uh, a member of the family who's working and living in another country. And increasingly, we've got judicial guidance and disputes with the ATO where we're trying to understand whether someone is or is not a tax resident. Hmm. Now, I think it's also important that, to observe that more Australian businesses are doing business overseas and with the US. 
and it's important to understand how the laws of course apply to this. I've gone through Australian tax laws and compiled a, a non-exhaustive list of the provisions in our Tax Act that depend on whether you're a resident or a non-resident. Now, I'm just going to whiz through these because I just think it gives people an insight as to exactly how many provisions we have to deal with as practitioners in Australia. Obviously, the marginal tax rates. We've got the temporary resident rules, the working holiday maker rules, the seasonal labour mobility program, whether, of course, income derived overseas is exempt or taxable in Australia, the treatment of foreign losses, whether you're subject to the Medicare levy. We've got non-resident withholding taxes, the treatment of foreign income tax offsets, double tax agreements, CGT event I1 and E2, so deemed disposals of assets when you become a, a non-resident. And of course, we've got our deemed acquisition of, of foreign assets when you become a resident of Australia. We've got CGT that applies to foreign assets. If you're a resident of Australia, we've got the whole issue of imputation and franking credits, which we seem to be quite unique in the world and still having an imputation system, and we can talk about this later. The access to the CGT discount, and more recently, the main residence exemption is now denied to non-residents. We've got the foreign resident capital gains withholding rules, because too many non-residents were not paying enough tax in Australia and absconding their responsibilities. Then we've got issues of the status of companies, trusts and superannuation funds and who controls them. And of course, if they're controlled by a non-resident, they in turn can become non-residents. Um, not of course that the companies are incorporated in Australia. And superannuation, we've got departing Australia superannuation payments. Oh dear, that's such a long list. It's a lot to deal with. It's so a very long list. I've just basically set the scene for the Australian tax system. So Martha, tell us about the US. Well, I let, let me tell you, you make the US sound so simple now. I'm having second thoughts. We might be a small country, but gee, we do things complicated here. Boy, it's super loaded. Um, well, it's very simple from our perspective um, on the US tax system, really. It's either you're a US tax resident, in which case you're subject to worldwide taxation, or you're not a U.S. tax resident, in which case we're just going to tax you on every, you know, kind of U.S. source income that we think you should be paying U.S. taxes on, and hence, you know, withholding taxes will apply. But there's a fundamental difference between U.S. and Australia. We have residency rules which are not necessarily linked to citizenship. That is true. You beat me to it because people say, how do I know if I'm a U.S. tax resident? It's not such a fudgy concept for us. I mean, it's plain and clear. You're either a U.S. citizen, you were either born in the U.S. or you're born to U.S. parents outside of the United States, or you naturalize, of course, that's you know a given, then you should know you're a citizen if you naturalize, or you know, you're a U.S. tax resident because you're a green card holder, or the last one is the 183-day test over the three years period, or what we call a substantial presence test. So it's not 183 days in a given year, it's over three years. Exactly. I know Canada and Australia uh, make this simple by making it just in one year. I think the Commonwealth countries have this running trend. I'd like to know who thought of 183 days. I think it came from the UK. Probably did. You know, the great old, the, not to say the great old, you know, Commonwealth, but, you know, we all have a common history. But in the US, so if you're a US citizen, you're subject to worldwide tax, given. So you could never have been born there, never stepped foot in the country, mm -hmm. but you happen to be born to US parents. Absolutely. And therefore you'll have US tax obligations yes. for your so-called Australian assets or Australian income. Yes, yes. And this is the surprising thing because I think US is only one of two countries in the world. I have to check about China because they had a change in US tax loss, but I don't, you know, have, I'm not a Chinese tax expert, but um, U.S. and Eritrea are the only two countries in the world to date that have worldwide taxation of their citizens. Do you think it 
puts the US out of step with the rest of the world or more progressive? Well, that's arguable, isn't it? Uh, you know, we may think we were looking towards a future world. Maybe we thought, you know, when the founders and the, the legislators of the US really, really early on were thinking about worldwide taxation, maybe they saw the internet and global mobility and cross borders and incomes, you which know, just didn't missing, exist. Which didn't exist. So ago. they either are super psychic and saw 100 years forward and 200 and said, you know what? We'll just do worldwide taxation. We'll beat everyone to the punch. Or it could be an arch- very, very old and archival saying, well, it was based on an old type of world where the U.S. thought it was the big brother of everybody and taking care of all the countries because we're all friends and we sing kumbaya around the campfire. And, you know, um, the U.S. allocating resources, you know, like military to different parts of the world. It's based on an old world political geopower uh, source that maybe that's what it reflects. Masha, have you got a sense of how many people around the world would not be aware that they have US tax obligations because, for example, they're born to US parents but never been there themselves? Well, that's the difficulty, Robin. It's that there's no official census that's available to figure out exactly how many US people around the world, I'm calling people because citizens and green card holders could be subject, uh, would be subject to potential U.S. taxation now. And we don't even know how many are being born every second. But there was an unofficial census taken, you know, by different U.S. organizations around the world. It was about 2 million in about 2012. And now it's more than that. Right. So it's it's definitely growing. And then I also asked uh, the, uh, you know, if whether the Australian uh, government also took, you see, have your uh, immigration report every time. Um, it doesn't seem to focus on that, of course. So so let's say I was born to US parents. Yes. I've never been there. Yes. And I decide to go on my first work or private holiday and I step foot on your airport. I'm entering customs. Right. And... I'm welcomed. Am I going to have a, a, a someone meet me at the, the gate? And they basically say, welcome to the US, Robin. Here's the immigration. You need to pass through quarantine and passport control. And by the way, you need to divert over here because you owe us a whole bunch of taxes. Are they going to be able to pick that up at the airport? Well, you know, in a in an ideal world, that would happen. <laughs> That's not ideal. <laughs> I know, it's a bad laugh. I'm coming out with a bad martial laugh. But no, um, under, under the U.S. law, if you're a U.S. citizen, you're supposed to travel un, under a U.S. passport when you're traveling to the United States. So there is a, you know, there is a provision that says you're supposed to have a U.S. passport when you're coming in and coming out of the U.S. as a U.S. citizen. So um, whether or not you're subject to U.S. income taxes, though, um, the presumption is you are because you're a U.S. citizen worldwide. But then, you know, that assumes you're born to two U.S. parents, right? So if you're... Parents are both U.S. or U.S. citizen, but if only one of your parents is U.S., then there's a there's a slicing and dicing that we do to determine whether or not you are a U.S. citizen by derivation of your only U.S. parents. So that's when, you know, we're splitting hairs, but it's very important. This is where we get, well, how old was your mother when she left the United States? You know, and when were you born? Because the tests differ. Understand. Okay. Yeah. So... Set the scene. When yes. we're talking about dual citizenship, what are the implications if I'm a citizen of Australia? Can I hold dual citizenship with the US? What does that mean for tax purposes? Well, that makes life very complicated. If you have two citizenships, I mean, Canadians too uh, are dual citizens, but that means that you would be filing two tax returns and, you know, you'd be filing for Australia and filing the US and potentially subject to double taxation. But that's where you have the US-Australia Income Tax Treaty uh, that became effective in 1983, by the way 
play uh, come into play because it's supposed to help you know rough out those edges where you're potentially subject to U.S. taxation. And I said 1983 because 1983 has been a long time, right? And the last protocol was in 2001, and many important provisions of that treaty that now have come into play more recently have not been amended. So we need to amend these as other countries are amending with the United States and getting more current with, you know, let's say pensions in Australia, like a superannuation, um, you know, uh, 401ks in the U.S. when they come back to Australia and they have these 401ks. So um, unless a treaty specifically covers it, then you are at risk for a potential double taxation. But then again, that's where we hope the foreign tax credit system kind of kicks in. Which it should in Australia. It should, because you guys have higher taxes right now than the U.S. Yes. Yes. Look, I would have thought the majority of the listeners in Australia who are practitioners are not really dealing with U.S. citizens as well as Australian citizens. Exactly. It's more likely to be the Australian citizen who is, of course, an expat. Yes. And they're working in the U.S. for a temporary period of time. So what can they expect when they enter the U.S.? What are their obligations and and what does this look like? Oh, well, you know, uh, a U.S. Uh, an Australian uh, citizen that's going into the United States on, let's say, for a temporary period, depends whether it's an H-1 visa or an E-3, which is a special visa just for Australians to work in the United States, or, or maybe they've obtained a green card. Let's say they're not as a U.S. citizen yet, but they're they're what's, in the process. What's the difference between a green card and a visa? Okay, the green card is a lawful permanent resident status, which means you know it's an immigrant visa. The other visas are non-immigrant, which shows an intent to not stay in the United States. So just work. Just work. It's, yep. it's an immigration concept, but then the, the it has tax implications because if you're a green card, you're treated like a U.S. citizen. You're subject to worldwide tax. Now, if you have a non-immigrant visa, unless you're subject to that 183-day substantial presence test, you would still be likely treated as not a resident. You would be able to leave the United States and say, thank you, U.S. I really enjoyed my, you know, less than 183-day stay. I'm home now. I'm paying taxes in Australia. And the only thing you have to pay tax on would be anything that's U.S. source, you know, which would be subject to a withholding regime. But um, for a new, for an Aussie expat in the U.S., they'd be subject to, yes, federal taxes, income taxes, at whatever the rates are for compensation. And then they'd be subject to the state where they're living at taxes because, you know, we have a lot of more states than Australia does. Uh, just about, what, 45 more or so? I, I've lost count. Um, so we have uh, state income taxes for them to deal with. Um, and then we also have property taxes. And, you know, we have sales and use taxes. We don't have GST. So that's unique. And then we have excise taxes. And, you know, we have, what, how many jurisdictions, Al, did we have last time you counted? Sales and use tax all income the, tax? Just all the different types of tax and jurisdictions. I think it's over. Uh, well, income taxes, there's 7,000 jurisdictions. And <laughs> sales and use tax, there's uh, 43 or 38, yeah. depending on how you count them. Yeah, and you're saying, Marsha, she's just one person living in one state. But yet, the states are have different taxing regimes, too. Yes. So if you derive, you live in one state, but you are having income from another state, you would be subject to what we call an apportionment of income for state and local income taxes. So it doesn't end there. So it's really good for an Australian coming to the United States to really get good advice about where you're living, you know, not just from a, hey, California's great, we like to live there, but where you're deriving your income and knowing underst- and understanding exactly what states might be coming after you for potential income taxes. We certainly have state and federal taxes too. Yes. And we had a review done back in 2010 called the Henry Review. And Ken Henry identified that we've got something like 125 taxes in this country, oh. of which 10 of them are generating 90% of the revenue. 
Wow. So we've basically got 115 taxes delivering about 10% of the revenue. Now, at our state level, we've got things like payroll tax, we've got stamp duty, we've got land tax, and they do differ across the states, but we've only got seven states and territories to deal with. Right. Um, you've got, what, 52. And and I think the last time I checked, I was in a discussion with some of our colleagues at STEP uh, that, uh, you know, the federal treaties uh, are recognized by the states here in Australia. So if the, the, the U.S.-Australia tax treaty would be recognized would flow through New South Wales and, you know, Victoria and Queensland, well, that doesn't work for the states in the U.S. So if you say, I'm not a, uh, if, as I was talking about with Simon off air, if you are, you know, subject to the 183-day task and you're potentially subject to U.S. tax, you could go to the Article 4 of the treaty and invoke that and say, I'm treaty tie-breaking myself back to be an Australian resident and therefore I am not paying U.S. income tax on worldwide income. And then you're in California. California says, that's really nice. We like that. I, we're, that's good for you, but pay up. You're still subject to you to California income tax because you're a California resident. And so they don't have to recognize the U.S.-Australia income tax treaty, which is a really big difference that a lot of people don't know about. Simon? So that that concept, Marsha, about a state-based income tax is just not something that happens in Australia. The state taxes Robin's talking about are taxes on businesses more than mm-hmm. anything, you know, payroll tax, and transfer property. duty or property and the like. So that concept that a, you've got a treaty that only applies to US between US federal tax and Australian uh, federal tax, if you like. Mm-hmm. Um, we don't have any other layer of income tax. The US then imposes these state-based income taxes for which you, you don't get the treaty protection. That's correct. And, and then the other thing we were talking about is how the US, despite, fill, uh, despite entering into the, agree, uh, the, the treaty with Australia, has a savings provision, which effectively means they can, they can invoke the domestic rules to override um, what would ordinarily be the treaty. So that concept, um, when I'm talking to clients, uh, that, those concepts are, are, are literally foreign to us. Yes. And they, um, even though they may have only sent somebody over there to do some work on a project, uh, they don't realise that as, as little as 31 days in the US could mm-hmm. trigger a much, much broader uh, tax compliance obligation than they would ever expect to cop if they were, if the reverse was happening in Australia. Right, because if you're 31 days in the U.S. this year, then I was telling Simon, you're 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 in the game for a 183 day test. You have to start asking how many days were you last year and the year before, right? But with respect to the saving clause, that is a very unique feature of the U.S. model tax treaties. It's in every version of model tax treaty, and by the way, it only applies really to U.S. citizens. So it's this part of our worldwide taxation. We love our citizens, and Therefore, regardless of what we agree to here, we might just say we didn't really agree to that because this is a citizen. All bets are off. And I think this applies to the renunciator, the, the, those who renounce as well. Yeah, and that, that's that's the second part where we see a lot of questions where you've got somebody, uh, we've already talked about accidentally not knowing that you, you know, you might, not that you're an accidental citizen, but you're a citizen, but you may have never stepped foot there you may have not been aware of your obligation. Suddenly you're an adult, you're earning income in Australia, and then suddenly you've got this provision that basically says you're going to do full-blown US tax returns mm-hmm. and full-blown Australian tax returns and have to fight over who gets priority on foreign tax credits. And the timing. And the timing, and that's the, true. And the timing. Uh, and then, you know, there's a much bigger, there's a much bigger um, 
you know, game at play. And, and it's, it tends to be quite ridiculous, really, if, you, if putting myself in the shoes of an accidental, you know, not that I'm accidental, I was always intentional, but if I were accident, an accidental Aussie, American Aussie living here and have finding I have U.S. tax obligations, I have to get a social security number first to apply to be able to file the tax return that will allow me to like, and eventually, let's say I'm going to give it up so that I can give up my citizenship because part of the requirements of renouncing and not being subject to U.S. exit tax is I'd be current on my U.S. tax filings. So a lot of our clients and folks who have come across have to have to get current first, get the social security number, get in the system, the U.S. tax system, to get out of it. And the compliance costs can be phenomenal. What sort of dollars are you talking? Well, it depends, depending on, you know, as I said, there are lots of unique Australian concepts and that don't exist in the U.S. tax world. You've got superannuation. Well, we don't really know what a superannuation is. We don't have a specific tax code for superannuation, so we've got to file it as different ways. And then parts of that, depending on if it's self-managed, can be reported as current income. Parts of that arguably would not be. And then you've got Australian discretionary trust we were talking about. If someone's just a beneficiary, you still have a form. We have a lot of stuff well, to file. Discretionary trust, of course, comes out of the, the UK common law system. Exactly. So it came out of law of equity. Right. And it's something that is um, more relevant to Commonwealth countries, but Australia, I believe with the exception of New Zealand, has more discretionary trust per head of population. I think New Zealand actually has more discretionary trust per head of population than we do. Really? That gives me something to look forward to. Absolutely. Because I was going to say, having practiced in Canada, uh, Canadians love their trust. Don't get me wrong, but almost every Australian I've come across has some sort of trust. So I always ask, you sure you're not a beneficiary of a discretionary trust? What about a unit trust? Because there's so many different types of trusts here. And the U.S. only has really one set of uh, one statute on when we the classification of a trust. It's it's arguably foreign unless you prove it's domestic. And then we have to go through a second layer of if it's foreign, then what kind of trust is it? Right. So and then we hair splice. So when going back to your question, how costly can it be? It can be thousands of dollars. Tens of thousands. Yeah. It's always mm. like someone said, you go to somebody was a U.S. citizen said, I go to H.R. on the block. I pay 300 bucks. You want good luck. If you are a U.S. person living outside the United States or in Australia and you have two, two taxation systems, it's never going to be $300. Yeah. So, you know, it's, it's going to be very costly. There's a recent case which has been doing the rounds um, through our appeal system and through the courts. And I, I think it's worth commenting on because it does have dealings with the U.S. Oh, how lovely. And it's a case called Burton. Uh, the background is that Burton is the beneficiary of a discretionary trust in Australia. And the trust itself was investing in various arrangements in US. I won't go into the detail of those uh, for the purposes of this discussion. Uh, the upshot was that those investments were realised for about $25 million. Uh, at the time, the, the US dollar and Aussie dollar were pretty much on parity. So I'm just going to ignore any exchange mm-hmm. differences here. So uh, there were some capital gains made as a result of realising these investments. That capital gain was made by the Australian Trust and, of course, distributed down to Burton as the beneficiary. But meanwhile, the US tax system had taxed him under the grantor trust arrangements. Mm-hmm. And so he was the trustee of the trust. The US actually taxed him personally. Yes. But our system recognises that as him being taxed in his capacity as trustee. So basically what happened is tax had been paid in the US. Mm-hmm. The tax payable in Australia was about $5.4 million. Mm-hmm. So he went to claim his foreign income tax offset for the US tax he'd paid Of overseas. course, that's how it's supposed to work. How it works. The US tax was about $3.8 million. Okay. So 
he goes to pay his 5.4, he claims his credit for the 3.8, and the commissioner says, no, you don't. You only get to claim half of the 3.8 million as an offset because in Australia, we have a CGT discount which halves the capital gains. Similar to Canada. Similar to Canada, whereas in the US, he was subject to a 15% reduced tax rate on the entire gain right. instead of 30%. It's a mismatch. It's a mismatch. It's a, um, a clashing of two tax systems. Exactly. So he appealed this to the federal court and lost. He appealed to the full federal court and lost again. And now there's potentially a special leave application pending for the High Court of Australia. Now, what the courts have basically said is, yes, our system, and we've got a domestic tax provision, which is um, 770-10 for those that want to go and read it, is talking about you get an offset for the tax you paid overseas. To the And it doesn't use the words to the extent, but it says um, for all or part of the amount included in your assessable income. Now, what's included in our assessable income is only half of the gain, not right. the full gain, even right. though in the US he paid the reduced rate of tax on the full gain. So, look, I would say our country is pretty much divided on this, even in, within tax banter. We yes. have... Uh, some of our uh, trainers are of the view that this is unfair and that he should get the whole credit and others are saying, no, this is the way the system works. So we're, we're quite divided on this. This is a tax planning failure. <laughs> it's a question of two systems. Exactly. And if the US had said, yes, we will also give you a discount, then this would be aligned. But only half of it's being included. So when you talk about double taxation, we only get a, a reduction or a credit or an offset for mm-hmm. the bit that has been subject to double tax. Right. Half of the gain was not subject to any tax in Australia. So even though there was tax paid in the US on it, it hasn't been double taxed. Right. Whereas the bit that is assessable in Australia, the 50% that is taxable, has been subject to tax in the US and subject to tax in Australia, hence why there's a, an offset for that half. Right. So there aren't many countries in the world that would do a discount. Certainly the US doesn't. No, because from our perspective, that's a US source gain, really, right? So the US has the first right to tax it. Um, unless we look at the treaty again for capital gains, which usually punts to the residents of the, the taxpayer, unless there's a certain type of gain, right? Real estate, we're always going to make that US source. So well, That's because it's physically there. It's like taxable Australian well, you know, property we're here. Very, yeah, we're, we're very, very, you know, we have very strong feelings about real estate. I you mean, lo- you love got, your land. We love our land. I think Australia... I think every, everyone loves their land and they feel strongly that all, real estate is always the exception, but yes. And this is a big conundrum, really. Um, you know, and as I mentioned, Canada always also has this mismatch when it comes to the 50%, you know, of the, for the capital gains tax, too. So this is a big problem. And unfortunately, it's not the only area that has, you know, uh, where, where Australians could be potentially subject to just, you know, the, the ironic, quote unquote, double tax. I mean, superannuation, just going through the different bits and pieces of it, um, you could be subject to triple tax. Um, and this is why it's such a passionate area. I know Aussies love their super. I think I love your super too, but I can't have a super unless I have a super Amir. So um, the way that we analyze supers, right, su- a super right now is, you know, um, very much all over the board because the IRS has not come out with a definitive guidance on it. But clearly it's not a 401k, so it won't be subject to, you know, our usual good tax provisions. It's not an IRA. It's, it has so many different lengths. So you already pay tax on it going in. In, the preconcessionals, the contributions are fifteen percent. Yep. The accruals are fifteen percent, and then theoretically on distribution, right? It should not have any more tax. And I know that's there's so many more different levels. Basically, to that. for over sixty, you'll yes. meet certain other right, conditions. Right. Assuming yep. you play the game, you, 
going to stick by the rules, then yes. But, you know, if you're a U.S. citizen that is turned topsy-turvy because, yes, we'll say, yes, it was already taxed in Australia, but guess what? That's not covered right now under Article 18 of the treaty. So the treaty only covers contributions. It was negotiated and effective in 1983. Superannuation came out in 1992. We need to revise the treaty because right now a lot of U.S. citizens and U.S. green card holders are being subject to having to report the super. And it's accruals on it as income. And so you're already taxing on 15% in Australia and you're taxed again in the U.S. on your ordinary income rate. But then the question is, can you get a credit on the 15% that was paid by the fund? And the answer is likely not because unless it's treated as a grant or a trust, it's treated as a separate entity and therefore you it's can't It's not you get, personally. It's not you personally. Mm. It wasn't your liability. So boom, it's like it, 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 there's, this happens a lot more often and it's very misleading when you say there's a tax treaty it solves everything it solves some but some tax treaties need updating now issues of US estate and gift taxes on Australian assets oh dear <laughs> tell me about this so US estate and gift tax as you were talking about domicile I'm like well okay Robin already knows what I'm talking about then so unlike US income tax residency the US estate tax is based on the concept of domicile and domicile is our fudgy concept because unless you're a U.S. citizen, whereby you're deemed to be always domiciled in the U.S., um, if you're a green card holder or you're just an Aussie that bought property in the U.S., you will be subject to an estate tax on your assets that are in the United States. And green card holders, arguably, let's, let's shelve that for a while, but let's say you're just an Aussie in the U.S., you bought real estate, and then you died. <laughs> In Australia, uh, that real estate will be subject to a U.S. estate tax. And this was, again, discovered recently, is the U.S. estate tax treaty with Australia hasn't been amended since 1953. And apparently, Australia already invalidated the domestic legislation that actually recognized this treaty. And I have that on good authority from the last step national conference when I was speaking about the U.S.-Australia tax treaty, estate tax treaty, uh, last year, May 2020, what, 819. So it's up in the air. But under the U.S., Australia state tax treaty, because we still see it from the U.S. side as it's still there, you would be able to get a pro rata um, exemption amount that's entitled to a U.S. citizen, but only a bit, right? So we do your worldwide assets, a denominator of your worldwide assets over your U.S. assets, and that percentage you multiply against whatever the current unified estate tax amount is, which at this point, unified estate credit amount is $11.58 million. Ironically, thank you um, to the existing Trump government. They don't get enough credit for this. So, you know, it actually increases that exemption. So if the U.S. real estate is, let's say, we have 10% of that exemption, right? So 1.5 million is exempt and your real estate fair market value on your date of death in the U.S. was 1 million, you're in luck. You don't have to pay the estate tax of 40%. It's a 40% death It's a 40% tax. estate tax, yes. And we're not even talking about the state where you may have died or we're not, where the state, the property was located when you died. So, so what is the, uh, the public's perception or view on death taxes? Because I've got to say in Australia, it has always been a very hot potato. Governments don't want to go near it. Well, that's very interesting because Al and I were just looking at the recent poll. Al, what, what can we say about the the status of our estate uh, uh, death taxes right now? It tends to come and go with the uh, the government, whoever is right. in power at the time. So now it's the Republicans, and so we have a very dramatically high estate tax exemption. Highest ever. Yes, uh, north of 11.58 million, yes. Uh, but with the November election, you know, all bets are off. It could go down to zero. Right. So we have actually a... So whatever the value of your estate when you pass, yes, that could end up being subject to tax. Yes. It, it, it creates these strange, morbid windows of opportunity where folks, you know, either 
try to pass over gifts or, you know, pull the plug on someone to right. take advantage of the higher rates. Right. So ironically, remember, the last time there was no estate tax was uh, one of our President Bush's, <laughs> the son, took off the, I think, the 2011, 2012, around the era that we had uh, zero estate tax for so a certain time. So this is something that fluctuates over time. It so is you, very political. You have consistency. No, we don't have consistency. We're It's like a roller coaster right now. But if we're looking at the Democratic platforms, uh, this is this estate tax exemption is going to go down, depending on who gets into power. The rules in the system always stay constant. It's the exemption that they play with. Right. Okay. Right. Like how much exemption is it going to get? But if you're looking at the current slate of candidates, it's not going to get this high. <laughs> so with the estate taxes, so is that all wrapped up with gift taxing as well? So is it's a unified, and yeah. gifts, it, um, someone can give something prior to them passing, but that could still get caught up in the in the estate tax regime. When you pass someone to some, when you pass the gift, it's outside of your estate tax already. But you know you're up to a certain exemption amount. So the gift is, you know, you you can gift some. Uh, property to anybody in the United States for an annual exclusion of 15000 Anything above that, you get subject to, uh, so to gift tax. But you huge. can use, carve into your unified gift and estate tax credit lifetime one. So anything in excess, you take away from the 11.5A. That's where I was getting to. So yeah. they, they work in tandem. Exactly. You work in tandem until you use it up. So right now what Al was saying, because we're not sure what's going to happen, um, there's a lot of proactive tax planning around making sure you maximize this 11.5A while it's still here. So at the moment, it's considered quite generous, but that yes. post-November could yeah, become more draconian. Yes. Imagine if you're both U.S. citizens and you're married and you're even in Australia, you've got, you know, 22, 20, you know, 23, you just add the 11.58 together and you could basically do a really good gifting uh, strategy mm-hmm. for everybody and get rid of this problem. We certainly get a little, little bit of... Uh, not so much questions, but we're aware that when we've got Australians looking to invest in property in the US and over the over the years, there's been opportunities for people to do that. Right. Um, where they do look at that, they certainly look at structures. This is morphing away from individuals, I know, but it's the individuals not wanting to get hit by state taxes, something we don't really have, have in Australia. Therefore, it's another layer on the US question checklist that they've got to go through where they try to have structures where it's not caught by the estate tax Right, system. and it's actually motivated a lot of transactions because Australia is not the only one without an estate tax. Canada also, and one thing, you know, I'm all for love. It's February 14 coming up, people. <laughs> so let's talk about taxing love, okay? So let's talk about a US citizen and a hot Aussie wife. Or it could be the hot U.S. citizen. I, I, you know, don't right. get me in trouble That's here. Right. Um, you know, usually you give a gift to your wife and it's not taxable. Not taxable in Canada, not taxable in Australia. But guess what? Because your wife is not a U.S. citizen or you're a U.S. person, as we call it, you know, green card, they cannot get that exemption. So all bets are off. And now we have to file a gift tax report, gift oh, tax goodness. return, to report that gift to your wife. Now, another area that certainly is different between the US and Australia, and um, Simon and I both have a background in in GST when it was introduced in Australia. And one of the things that the Australian government was adamant about, and this is enforced by our consumer watchdog, which is the ACCC, is that all prices must be displayed and quoted GST inclusive, which means when you go up to the register, 
in a retail environment, when you're ordering from your supplier, yes. although I do tend to find in business there's sometimes the exclusive because they figure you get the credit back, but certainly in the retail environment, you must quote GST inclusive prices. So the price that is on the tag is the price that you pay. Now, I went to the States for the first time last year. I went to Honolulu. Oh, congratulations. <laughs> I made it across and I still count that as the States. Um, but... I was not prepared for when I would go and buy something at even, yeah, go into the chemist, might be some sunscreen. Right. And the price tag says $9.99. You go, great, you get out a $10 note. Right. And then you go to pay for it. And then by the time all the taxes get added on, it's quite different. And it took me over a week to get used to this idea that what you are seeing on a menu, what you're seeing on a price tag is not what you end up paying. How do people live with this? Well, I guess uh, with eyes closed because it's hard <laughs> to pay the bill at the end of a long, big restaurant bill. But, you know, there's a requirement to get things separately stated because of just the nature that our sales and use tax systems work. And you've got these layers of state taxes built into that. So it's not like it's just one tax that's being added right. on. You have it? to know that, you know, you separately state the sales tax. Uh, so we from the gross, ta- you know, the, what you're being charged, because we want to see that you're you're adequately stating it, you know. So it's all um, about transparency. Right, and knowing, you know, and they, there's so many sales tax audits going on that they have no choice. They have to untangle that, that what you would have as a consolidated GST and the purchase price with, with our components are different. We like to break it out. So we made it easier because we've just got one GST and it's 10%. So one eleventh of the price yes. is the GST. Yes. So, so it's not difficult. Yeah, and ours is very difficult. Because is... you've got all these layers and interactions of state and federal. Yes. I can understand why they want the transparency, but gee, it makes it hard to work out what you're actually going to be paying for just stuff. Just close your eyes, Robin. Close your eyes when you're paying the bill. <laughs> That's what I do. <laughs> State taxes is another animal altogether. That's a concept. You start talking to businesses here. It's one thing as an individual or as a tourist, you go there. That's a frustrating element. You know, you just want to see the price. You want to know what you're paying. You want to price check against it. And then it's completely different when you go to some states where there aren't any state sales taxes. And it is what you, you know, you almost is what you see is what you get. Um, But that creates, as I understand it in the US, Disproportionate or people buying from different states. Mm-hmm. Now, when they've got they've got nexus, state-based nexus and jurisdiction type issues. So there's this all this thing about you with internet, you know, with uh, e-tailing. If you think about that, people buying cross-border states. You think cross-border Australia, US is one thing. Over there, it's all cross-border within the states, mm-hmm. and so. That's a completely different... There's two sides to that. There's the consumer side trying to buy at the best price from the state without the retail sales tax on there. And you've got from the the company side or the the entity side where they're sitting there saying, how do I cope with my state-based compliance because I might be delivering into a state? Oh, this is is just whetting the appetite for episode two because, yes, we did come out with a big Supreme Court case in June 2018 called Wayfair... And, uh, you know, Wayfair, uh, we'll t- I know Al and, you you know, Simon will probably get into it on episode two. But, yes, that's a very good point. There, Our concepts of geography and boundaries and sales taxes have changed already. And the Supreme Court even undid their own decision in Wayfair, which was very presidential. It shook my world. And uh, as a result, everyone could be doing sales tax collection for you know, the state tax agencies, even from Australia. da 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 dun that's where the thunder rolls. Can I ask you about the IRS, which is the Internal Revenue Service, like the ATO? Yes, equivalent. because we know no IRS agent could be possibly listening to this podcast. Not so at please. All. 
The relationship the taxpayers have with the ATO, it's become increasingly digital and electronic in Australia. We're introducing all these new platforms and we've got things like MyGov, which is the way you access your, your information online. Um, MyGov ID is being rolled out at the moment for people to interact as, as tax agents and as businesses with the ATO. What is the relationship like electronically in particular with the advent of technology between taxpayers and the IRS? Well, you know what? Honestly, this is a really good development. I mean, the IRS has gotten a fresh budget from the, the, the current administration. They've been massive. They just implemented a massive overhaul of the software. So there are easier ways to access your account online. So it's very similar to, I think, what the Australians are going through with the ATO and the Canada Revenue Agency. But it's still limited in, this, you know, in terms of, is it building brand loyalty? Is it making them more touchy-feely, you know, more accessible? That is definitely the game the aim but I think it's, it's taking a little more to get there because you know um, it just takes a long time to get an answer back or to get a tax transcript back uh, unless you've got you know you're one of the super simple taxpayers that can get the answer back it, it's not as simple you know you can create an account and you can pay online you can do an installment but it's still hard to file that tax return on your own because it's gotten more complicated the form 1040 form used to be really simple and it was revamped in 2018 2019 with the tax reform and it's now getting more, many, many more pages to file. And where does the owner sit? Because in Australia, we, back in 1992, moved to a system called self-assessment. And what this means is prior to that date, you would send all your information to the ATO and people called assessors would sit there and sift through it all and work out how much tax you had to pay. Right. In 1992, the burden was legally shifted back to the taxpayer. So under self-assessment, we lodge returns and we tell the ATO what we've earned and what we're legally allowed to claim, and then we pay tax on the, the taxable income. The ATO has the right to check this, and we have these periods of review where the ATO is allowed to come back and have a look at what we've done to see whether it's correct. But in order to enable us to lodge returns that we believe to be correct, they have to give us information. So this is where all the interpretation, the rulings, the guidance comes out. So in other words, you've got to figure out how much tax you've got to pay, but we have a complicated system, so here we will assist you with all this guidance. And that is why we as a business tax banter and Webmartin Consulting exist, because people need help wading their way through and, and navigating their way through the, the, the volume of information that comes out every year. Thanks. So comparing to the US, do you have a system where uh, the owner sits more on the taxpayer or the IRS? And similarly, does the IRS provide this a huge amount of information to enable them to navigate their way through it? It's very similar to here. It's a self-assessment system. Um, but the interesting thing is the IRS could very easily set up a website where you could go in and enter the information if you had a very simple return. But the um, tax software industry has a wonderful lobby in the U.S. And so what happens is... People have to go in, they buy a $40, $50 program if they want to try to do the tax return at home. Or, you know, if they have a complicated situation, you know, normal business return uh, might be anywhere from a couple of thousand up to $10,000 to have it done by a CPA in the States. And I think that's what most people want to do to the extent they have any controversy or they're uncertain about things. They want to get that practitioner's malpractice insurance, you know, as a backstop. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I, I'm always amazed at the U.S form system really for the taxes even to just add and forget it at a corporate level but just at an individual level 
Um, I also like the concept, maybe the concept why the US doesn't go heavily into trusts is that they can file individual returns jointly. So here, you know, trusts and, and splitting of income and all the perception of splitting of income via trusts in the US, you've got a couple they can file jointly, they can effectively split. It could be one person who's the breadwinner, but they can split that income across two people, get the advantage of the tax, the effective tax rates across both. Here we don't have that concept. But coming back to the forms, so there's a couple of those concepts that come in, so I can see why it always makes sense. Um, funnily enough, a consultant or a practitioner saying, go to your practitioner, get them to help you lodge your tax return. Yeah. There are a lot of the tax returns in Australia, you would not need to do that. It would be very simple. Salary and wages, um, put that in your tax return, very simple, done, and, and the ATO has a system to do it. Every time I see a US individual tax return, 50, 60, 80 pages. It's not just one form. It starts with a 1040, the 1040, or we see them 1040NR if it's yes. an outsider right. you know, doing a return in the US. Then there's a whole heap schedules. of other forms. We got schedules. 8893, authorization for something, right. you know, something else, something else. So there's all these layers of documents which repeat the information multiple times. So I imagine that's where the software suppliers come into it, that helping from that point of view. And you know, once you buy one of these software packages, I think the most popular one is TurboTax in the US. So you put in all your data and then they've got you because as you said, next year you roll over the data. And now they've even taken it to the point where, you know, it used to be years ago, you know, you'd buy the disk and come home and put it in. Now everything is just in the cloud and you can do it on your phone if you have a very simple return, as we said. Yeah. And they're very clever because what they do now is you used to buy the software, you had the license, and once the license was not renewed, you didn't get future updates or support, but you could still use the software to read your data. Yeah. But what they're now doing, because it's all cloud-based, if you don't keep paying your subscriptions, you get cut off and you can't even access the data that was there historically. Yes, yes. But yes. I, this year, though, there's talk in Congress about if people have income under a certain level that they're going to force the IRS to start putting some software on the IRS website so that... Uh, For simple lodgement. And, and, that, yeah, and, and just one warning to anybody that uses Google to do any research or try oh, to look dear. at the IRS, never click on anything that says .com. It's IRS.gov. Everybody Good has tip. swooped down on these sites and they will try to pull you into their uh, their uh, checkout. Similarly, I think you'll find there's an ATO.com.au, which is not correct. It's .gov.au. And then in addition to those forms, there's also disclosures. So one of the other things that gets caught is... We start back, you've got the accidental, accidentally caught in the US system. Someone who's been here, no real, or they've left the country for a long, long period of time. Let's say they have zero, they live in Australia, US citizen lives in Australia, has Australian sourced income. It should be reasonably simple. They, yes, they need to lodge a US tax return, but at the very, very least, even if they've renounced, they often still have to do. Um, financial reporting, like bank account reporting, so FBAR, et cetera, et cetera. So there's, in addition to just tax, there is actually an information gathering process. Yes, yes, there are certain, you know, for, for U.S. citizens living in Australia who haven't renounced, there's a lot more information reporting. If you've renounced, it doesn't mean you're done with all the filings, but you're done with substantially less. Let's just make it simple that way. Okay. Yeah. Now, Marsha, I'm going to have to wrap up the next few minutes. Yes. But... 
can you comment on Archie? Because I think there's something that you wanted to discuss regarding oh, I Archie get and a- his green card. Ex- exactly. I always get asked this question. Last year I got asked about Harry and Meghan. And Meghan, as we know, is U.S. born. She is a U.S. citizen. And Archie was born in the, in the U.K. to a U.S. citizen mother who definitely lived, was born, you know, after 1986. And therefore, the, I'm going through the citizenship rules. He is a citizen, just to make it point. Now, Archie then... And that's got to be the first time that a member of the royal family is a U.S. citizen? Yes, yes. So this is very interesting for us. And I think there's been some articles out there on what we would advise Archie to do. But, you know, definitely to say he would be, if he were to renounce his U.S. citizenship, the exit tax would be certain to fall upon him. It would be significant, wouldn't it? He probably even was worth more than $2 million from even before he was born. I suspect so. Yeah, and now he's going to go to live in Canada, which will make him a Canadian resident. So, you know... So he's got quite a complicated tax situation. Oh, yes. I mean, I, I can't wait until he moves to Australia because he wants to vacation here during the cold Canadian winters. And then uh, then we'll, he'll have an Aussie resident, Canadian resident. And how many tax treaties are we going to look at? Where is he really a resident of? Just boiling down to where we all started. So, you well, know... his domicile is clearly the UK because that's where he was born. And I think the UK would probably follow the Australian system where, interestingly, they go with the domicile of the father. I've always questioned that one. Mm-hmm. Domicile is a completely different But then issue. again, for the US, domicile for a US citizen is always the US. So... The plot thickens. Absolutely yeah. does. <laughs> Look, on that note, I'm going to wrap up this episode. It has been an absolute delight. So thank you, Al. Thank you, Marsha. And thank you. thank you, Simon. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this episode of Tax Yak. I've been chatting with Marsha Lane Dungog, international tax lawyer and director of private client services at Anderson in the US, and also with her colleague, Al Nunes, who's managing director of the same firm. Also joining us was Simon Calabria, director at Webmartin Consulting. If you'd like to connect with us on social media, You can find Tax Banter on LinkedIn and Twitter. Let us know your take on episodes or suggest future topics or speakers. You can also get onto the TaxYak team on email podcast at taxbanter.com.au and find our regular blog articles at taxbanter.com.au forward slash banter hyphen blog. If you're enjoying our podcasts, please take a moment to rate and write a review for the show wherever you are. It will help to improve the profile of the show and we would love to hear your thoughts. We look forward to you joining us next time.